Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a fantastic guest. He was with me uh, about a month ago, Eugene V. Kunin. He's a senior investigator at the National Center for Biotechnology Information and CBI. Uh, he's also the author of a book called The Logic of Chance, The Nature and Origin of Biological Evolution. Uh, Eugene's a heavy hitter in the virology world. Uh, he's had a lot of publications out there. He's very well known. And I'm really glad to have him as a contributor to, the, uh, to this virus book I'm working on. So, uh, you know, he's, he's like one of my, uh, my anchor tenants, you know, he's the, he's the Nordstrom of them all. He's like one of the, the big guys that, uh, I'm glad to hear from. So Eugene, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm intrigued and, uh, by the idea of the book and very much look forward to see it. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Why did you get interested in viruses? Oh, well, that background comes of you know, my, my involvement in biology and viruses comes from, from early days, from, from my, what, what I would call this, sophomore year in college. Uh, we had, at that time, you know, this was, I come from Russia originally, and this was happening in Moscow University in, in, in Russia. Uh, and at that time, we were um, distributed, um, assigned to departments during our sophomore year. Um, and um, it just happened. Uh, um, uh, more or less by, by, by chance uh, um, um, to get into a uh, um, uh, virology department. Not quite by chance, because the professors looked very interesting. Um, um, and I knew little about viruses. I knew quite a bit about, you know, many things in biology, but little about viruses. Um, um, but then I, uh, uh, found that, then I found that the viruses were so interesting. Um, and um, I was, uh, I may say, hooked. Okay. Is there, is there one and, thing and that, that, and that was a, that, that was a long, long time ago, over 40 years. What's, what's um, just for a quick moment, what's, what's one feature or uh, thing that you've learned about viruses that like blows your mind? Just one quick tidbit. Oh, please say it again. Oh, what's, what's one aspect of viruses that like literally blows your mind? You just, you can't believe it. You know, what's one example of something they do that you just, it's, it's amazing to you? It is uh, very uh, amazing to me how, maybe I will not speak about one fact, just how different viruses are. How, how enormous is the, the diversity of what we can do with the genomes, how different are the genomes, how many different kinds of genes that they have, different kinds of proteins that they make. Uh, different ways uh, uh, in which they interact uh, with their hosts, and sheer quantity of uh, uh, viruses uh, on Earth. Uh, um, the virus, I think people may not really appreciate this, many people, but viruses are, sort of by count, uh, the most abundant biological entities 
on Earth. There are several times more wireless particles that there are perhaps even an order of magnitude more uh, than uh, there are cells on the planet. Yeah, I've heard there's like 10 to the 31 viruses estimated to be on the planet. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a reasonable, sensible estimate. That's crazy. Um, you know, uh, other examples, like in one millimeter, sorry, milliliter of seawater, or in one, you know, uh, a few grains of soil, I guess there's billions of viruses as well, right? Billions maybe, maybe a bit steep. Uh, but hundreds of millions. Hmm, okay. Well, continuing on in your bio, so in college you were luckily, you know, in the university you luckily got into the virology department. And what's your career been like since then? Since then, I continued uh, on the path of a virologist, and my uh, master degree and my PhD degree were in experimental virology. I studied uh, RNA viruses. Related to to, to polyomyelitis, poliovirus, experimentally, the RNA replication. Uh, uh, And that was in in one of the virology institutes of the Russian Academy of Medical Sciences. Mm, uh, uh, And uh, um, this was up to my PhD. And after that, however, something very interesting happened. Uh, this was in the early 1980s, uh, and at that time, uh, the first um, genomic uh, um, uh, sequences um, of small viruses appeared. And some of my colleagues were really very interested in, in, in what was written there in these uh, nuclear four, in this four letter alphabet, uh, uh, AUGC. Uh, what was written in those small uh, genomes? It was very uncertain at the time. Now we know sort of layout of mm, mm, uh, many uh, mm, genomes, including virus genomes. Mm. Uh, but at that time, it was like terra incognita. It was incredibly exciting uh, to uh, look at those sequences and trying to understand uh, uh, making uh, uh, predictions uh, mm, uh, uh, about uh, mm, uh, the functions of the proteins uh, of um, the different viruses, what they can do, how they are evolutionarily related to each other, and so on and so forth. We have reached a degree of success in that. Mm, uh, and okay. through that effort, uh, uh, computational biology can become my profession, really, for the rest of my life. Okay, and then, uh, all right, so on to the, um, on to the questions. Uh, First one is, um, do all cells have viruses that attack them? You know, prokaryotes, eukaryotes. Uh, is there any form of life that you know of that doesn't have viruses that prey on it? Uh, well, first of all, I think it is best to say all kinds of organisms. Because sure. in a multicellular organisms like, like us, not necessarily all types of cells will be infected by viruses. But, uh, in terms of all organisms, practically, there is an interesting and important infection, uh, exception, which are intracellular uh, parasitic bacteria and symbiotic bacteria. These are typically not infected by viruses. Viruses do not quite figure out the way uh, to play the game uh, with the parasitic and symbiotic bacteria inside eukaryotic cells. 
Oh, so there are some bacteria that will go inside our cells and stay there for long periods of time, and those don't seem to have phages that, that uh, prey upon them. Uh, yes. Uh, mm. For instance, a certain, mm, 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 not even our cells, not quite, uh, because mm, our, we do not have, um, we do have intracellular parasites, such as rickettsia and chlamydia. Uh, mm, there are still viruses that, well, yeah, uh, actually, actually not really. Sorry, not really. Uh, 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 indeed, there are no viruses, to our knowledge, infecting these organisms. Their ancestors that were pre-living bacteria have viruses. We have their pre-living relatives uh, that had viruses. Uh, these uh, derived uh, parasites with very, very small reduced genomes, they do not support uh, reproduction of viruses. Yeah, I've heard of some parasites. They haven't yet found viruses that prey upon them. So I guess they don't know if they do have them. I oh, just wondered if you think that they always, will find them. Uh, mm, uh, uh, mm, uh, there is always uh, mm, uh, mm, uh, the question, you know, if something is not the mm, absence of evidence is not really evidence of absence. If viruses have not been found, uh, mm, Mm, um, that doesn't mean necessarily that they do not exist. But the, you know, evidence of, um, absence of evidence accumulates and it's clear that viruses are not typical for those organisms. Well, I've, I read a paper that said um, even in stromatolites that were around, you know, like three plus billion years ago, they found viruses that I guess, you know, uh, preyed upon them. What do you think came first? Do you think that viruses came before cellular life or vice versa? Uh, viruses could not come before cellular life in, in the literal sense. Uh, viruses are obligate intracellular parasites on some occasions symbiotes. Uh, so in the literal sense, viruses could not come before cellular life. Uh, although it could be the case uh, that very er earliest primordial replicants mm, mm, uh, were in a sense virus-like, which doesn't mean viruses, literally. Virus-like in terms of small genome, small number of genes, mm, a few pro only a few proteins according by, uh, encoded uh, by the small genomes of these uh, entities. Mm, mm, uh, so mm, uh, there, the, might be argued uh, that uh, primordial replicants were in some ways virus-like. Mm -hmm. uh, mm, uh, but uh, mm, uh, mm, viruses per se could not come uh, mm, before cells. They sh surely came like, almost immediately, very soon in evolution after the emergence of first cells. How do you think viruses first started then? Pardon me? How do you think the first viruses came into existence? Mm -hmm. Was it a cellular mechanism gone awry? Or was uh, it... Uh, not you know? exactly. For all we understand, mm, uh, mm, uh, the mm, machinery for the replication of the virus genomes uh, comes directly from uh, mm, very ancient replicants that existed at uh, mm, pre-cellular stages of uh, um, evolution. Um, uh, however, 
the important structural part of viruses, capsid proteins, other structural proteins. These are, so to speak, stolen or borrowed uh, host uh, genes. Uh, so uh, very early on uh, in uh, the evolution of life, uh, those primordial replicons uh, scavenged uh, these genes uh, encoding some structural proteins from the cellular host uh, 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 and, um, and became true viruses. So when you look at um, extracellular vesicles and plasmids, do you think that they're virus-like? Do you think that they're analogs of viruses? They have features shared with virus. And in some cases, in particular in the case of plasmids, there are direct evolutionary relationship with uh, uh, viruses. Uh, yet they're not viruses. Vir uh, it depends on the definition. Uh, but the best way to uh, define viruses is, uh, I believe, is to um, um, define them as uh, um, selfish genetic elements that encode structural proteins encapsidating the genome. And from that point of view, um, uh, vesicles or plasmids are not viruses, even though they may be related to viruses and may resemble viruses in many ways. Yeah, because viruses appear to be co-opted by bacteria and perhaps eukaryotic cells as tools, and then viruses themselves appear to co-opt cellular absolutely, machinery and absolutely. use it as a tool. Absolutely. So it, it is a tool, yeah, it is a tool, and it's also used as a tool, and it uses tools, which is weird. Absolutely. I'm not sure it's maybe missing weird, but it's really a major, major feature of the evolution of life. Uh, that indeed, as you pointed out very correctly, viruses are co-opted for cellular functions, such as, for instance, so-called gene transfer agents, which, uh, which are involved in, as, as the name says, in horizontal transferring genes in uh, uh, bacterial and archaeal communities, and vice versa. Viruses uh, viruses derive, uh, recruit uh, uh, cellular uh, defense uh, uh, systems um, uh, um, for their own purposes, so to speak, oftentimes uh, to uh, as counter defense, to cope uh, with, the, with the host defense. It's, that's an important part of what is often called arms race between viruses and hosts. Yeah, because when I look at extracellular vesicles, you know, they're produced by cells. They have genetic material inside them. They can enter into other cells. They can regulate gene expression. They have a lot of the hallmarks of viruses. That's why I ask. And also plasmids, too. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes, they have hallmarks of viruses. Uh, it's, it's a continuum here. Uh, uh, between different kinds of uh, mobile genetic elements. Viruses are a variety of mobile genetic elements. Um, the defining, they have different characteristics, but in terms of what they contain in their genomes, what they encode, the defining characteristic is that they encode uh, at least one major structural protein uh, that uh, uh, encapsulates, protects, and uh, aids in dissemination of the viral genome. So do you, do you think that viruses are alive 
and why or why not? Uh, yes. Uh, um, I'm not fond of this question, frankly. It, it's often. I know. It's a, it's a difficult one. I know it's philosophical, but, you know, like, um, I was thinking about the seeds of a tree. You know, let's say a tree has seeds. You know, the seed, is it alive? I don't know. You know, you'd, you'd say the tree is alive for sure. And the way I experience trees most of the time is as, mm -hmm. as trees. But, you know, when you look at a seed, it's not moving. If you zoom in to the microscopic level, it's still probably not moving or doing anything. Yet it can sense, and in the right soil with the right moisture and everything, it can become a tree. So is it living or not? And if you consider a virus, the virion stage is, it seems to be very much like a seed. And when there's sensing going on, when it fuses with a cell, it, it yes, comes to of life, course. essentially. Of course, yeah. but of course. Uh, 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 you see, what is important is viruses are clearly part of the biological world, an inalienable part of the biological world. It's essential, it's intrinsic part of the biological world. Um, uh, uh, viruses um, have their own evolutionary phase, their own evolutionary trajectories. Uh, their own factors uh, of selective factors that shape the evolution. In that sense, uh, they are substantially independent of the host. But in other sense, in terms of energy production, in terms of obtaining uh, the building blocks uh, for the um, uh, build up of the viral genomes, viral proteins, uh, they are de they depend on the host. So they have some characteristics of living organisms, but not others. And when you say that viruses are like seeds or spores, or virions are like seeds or spores, or whatever, yes, true. Uh, but they, uh, to come to life, so to speak, they um, critically depend on the host cell. Would you uh, say they're, they're contingently alive once they enter a host cell? You may say that they are contingently alive, but um, generally, as I say, I don't really like this question uh, because um, uh, asked in this uh, um, um, narrow, strict form. Uh, because um, you say that they are alive, and there are many counter arguments against these good counter arguments. You say they are not alive, and again, there are objections. Uh, okay, you may say that they are contingently alive. Uh, mm, this is this is sort of sort of better, uh, mm, uh, but mm, I just prefer to uh, mm, uh, say clearly uh, that viruses are biological entities with their own evolutionary fates. The reason I ask is that a lot of people say, you know, scientists, oh well, of course they're not alive. So, but I think it restricts people's thinking. So I think that when people look at viral action. If they just say, oh, well, they're not alive, so this and that and this can never happen, I think that limits your thinking. So I think it is good to think about this question and um, think about both possibilities when considering what they do. Uh, mm, uh, that may be the case. Mm, that may be the case. If, you know, if uh, uh, for some members of the public, perhaps, uh, uh, the claim that viruses are not alive means that viruses are, say, like a toxin. Mm, which, by the way, was, you know, the kind of thinking that existed uh, when viruses were just discovered uh, more than 100 years ago. Mm, uh, then that is wrong. As I, uh, in whatever I said, I emphasize that viruses had their own evolution. They have 
uh, evolution uh, that is affected by a set of factors, selected factors that are distinct from those affecting the evolution of ho or the host or of any other organism. And in that, in that sense, um, they're autonomous in many ways. Um, uh, but they're, at the same time, they are not like true life forms. Uh, again, uh, because um, um, for energy production transformation, they're entirely dependent on Okay, well, a different question. Um, you know, viruses can either enter a cell and, you know, multiply and lyse the cell and blow it open and kill it. They can go latent, you know, or lysogenic. They can hang out in the cell and maybe be commensal. And then some of them, you know, retroviruses can endogenize into the DNA. What do you think governs either lytic or lysogenic behavior or latent or, you know, pathogenic behavior? Oh, now that is a very... Mm, mm, it's, not, it's not a simple question uh, to which there are no single answer. Uh, mm, uh, the virologists, uh, uh, mm, especially those that study temperate bacteriophages, often talk uh, mm, uh, about uh, lysis, lysogeny choices or decisions. Mm. Um, so, so um, uh, of course, of course, this is this is metaphorical. But at the same time, there is there, I think these are fairly nice phrases, uh, um, a fairly nice way to describe the uh, behavior of uh, viruses, uh, um, because uh, um, they quote unquote make that decision um, based largely on the state of the uh, um, infected cell. Mm, if uh, mm, cell feels, mm, uh, mm, if the cell feels, you know, good, there are lots of nutrients, etc. Uh, mm, uh, the mm, uh, mm, uh, virus will tend to become a lysogen and propagate with that cell because this is kind, mm, this is safe, this is stable. If the cells are mm, in in good conditions, uh, mm, uh, that that helps. Uh, at the same time, under stress, if the cell is likely to die, uh, mm, uh, the uh, uh, lysogen, the prophage, uh, will be induced uh, uh, and the virus uh, will make the lysis choice um, uh, and uh, try, to, try to kill the cell and escape as soon as possible. Yeah, so a, a virus can go from being uh, latent, but if the conditions in the cell become uh, you know, toxic for the virus or, become, or the cell is having problems metabolically, the virus then can change its action and then become lytic is what I've heard. Is that what you've seen? Pretty much. So the virus, in some sense, is sensing its cellular environment. Yes. And then changing what it, its action, what it does. That is correct. That is correct. The virus senses the mm, cellular environment and indirectly the extracellular environment and um, make the, so to speak, choices based on that. Um, do you think that viruses uh, have an identity, like a species identity? Like, yes. you know, if bacteria are going to form a biofilm, they'll probably preferentially form a biofilm with their own strain. Do you think viruses, when they're, you know, in a host that they know, okay, I'm strain A and this other one is different enough where they're a different virus or a different strain, do they have a group identity? Yes, absolutely. Uh, viruses have their distinct individuality. Uh, distinct uh, uh, identity uh, uh, and uh, and uh, there are lots of intervirus conflicts 
that is uh, 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 viruses prevent our through natural selection, viruses have evolved in specific and pretty elaborate mechanisms to prevent uh, the, uh, what is called superinfection uh, by other viruses. Um, uh, and uh, they are particularly good uh, at fighting their relatives, similar strains, uh, related strains. Do, you, do you think they're doing that before they enter a cell or only after they enter a cell? They're able to stop other viruses entering? No, they, they, uh, no. There, there is, there is uh, nothing, effectively nothing they can do, uh, then they are outside the cell. But once they are inside the cell, uh, they have various ways uh, to prevent uh, the reproduction of other viruses at different stages. Either do not allow them to enter the cell at all, or mm, not let them enter but then kill them, uh, mm, all these things happen. Any examples come to mind of this behavior that you're, yes. you can talk about? Yes. Uh, mm, I'll just, um, uh, first of all, say that this behavior is effectively universal uh, among viruses. Uh, mm, pretty much every virus can do that uh, mm, at a certain level. I will, I will give you, I will give an exa very specific example uh, that has to do with our own um, mm, recent work. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, mm, uh, because um, uh, mm, uh, it also involves uh, mm, uh, the CRISPR system, uh, which has become, in the last decade, also has become quite famous uh, for a completely unrelated re reason, namely that uh, mm, uh, components of certain CRISPR systems are mm, mm, used uh, mm, to uh, mm, uh, develop uh, mm, powerful, most efficient, uh, mm, genome editing tools. But in nature, uh, mm, uh, the uh, CRISPR system is used by mm, mm, bacteria and archaea, by prokaryotes, as defense um, mechanism uh, against viruses. Uh, mm, mm, and so-called adaptive immunity, which uh, works in a very interesting way. Uh, mm, uh, mm, these mm, CRISPR systems incorporate pieces of the virus genome, then produce an RNA that guides enzymatic machinery to the virus genome, uh, and the enzymatic machinery destroys it. Now, viruses, not all, but many, uh, mm, quite many uh, bacteriophages and archaeoviruses, uh, mm, have made their own use of it. Uh, mm, uh, they have captured uh, from the host uh, mm, CRISPR repeats. Uh, mm, and mm, into these CRISPR repeats, uh, they incorporate pieces of the genomes of other viruses. And mm, then they use the host machinery, the host CRISPR machinery, uh, and this little piece that they call themselves uh, mm, to mm, direct this powerful destructive machinery of the host towards the other virus. You, um what are quasi-species? And then once you define it, I want to ask you a question about um, yeah, Quasi-species are mm, uh, mm, little, uh, are uh, variants of virus uh, genomes. They are not real species because, because uh, mm, uh, the differences may be small, uh, mm, uh, but mm, mm, at the same time, they have different, may have different properties uh, mm, uh, and mm, uh, this, is, this is the very characteristic structure of, of the virus population. Uh, any population is heterogeneous, uh, but uh, virus populations are 
more heterogeneous analysis, which is why it said that they can, or because of the low fidelity of the you know, viral replication system, which is why, especially RNA virus, which is why uh, uh, it said that uh, uh, virals uh, populations consist of quasi-species. I'm, I'm not really sure this is great terminology. Uh, it might have been uh, uh, better to use this simpler, less fancy verb variant or something like that, uh, but, but quasi-species got up. Got it, okay. Well, if I imagine um, a colony of bees, you know, you have worker bees, drones, etc. do you think anything's happening similarly with viruses? You know, if they have a group identity, how do they view the quasi-species? How do they view the variants? Do they work together? Do they compete? Do you very, think there's very, any sen very, sense of that? Very interesting question. Uh, uh, there are no definitive answers. Uh, um, the idea that they compete um, is sort of basic. When you know um, uh, that, uh, and, and, and they surely do, uh, then you know that there are different variants, different genotypes uh, in a um, uh, population. Uh, um, it's quite clear that um, at least some of them, they would differ in terms of uh, mm, uh, uh, fitness, mm, uh, and there will be competition and selection. That is clear. Now, the question of whether, in addition to that, there exists some, some forms of cooperation uh, between uh, uh, different... Uh, so what I said is uh, that uh, under the uh, simple, straightforward uh, Darwinian uh, thinking, uh, one would think that there will be that um, this lack of fidelity uh, in replication and the consequent inability of viruses to maintain homogeneous populations is a disadvantage. Mm. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, if they could, so to speak, they would just keep the dominant type, the, most, the, the fittest type. Mm. Uh, which, yes, it's pardon? It, you know, if I, if I think of like cells and cell types, they cooperate, but I guess in some circumstances they compete. Or if I think again of a colony of ants or bees, they have roles, they are different, but they also coordinate. So if I think about bacterial strains or viral quasi-species, I wonder when there's cooperative behavior and when there's competitive behavior and what governs Yeah, these, 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 are, these, are, these are good questions. Evidently, if the uh, you know, the distribution of roles uh, and the uh, cooperation in uh, virus and uh, microbial populations was as obvious as it is in ant colony or bee colony or, or multi a multicellular organism for that matter. We would not have been discussing this. Clearly, this is not the case. Yet, uh, there's some evidence of apparent uh, collective cooperative behavior uh, in population of uh, viruses. In particular, it has been shown uh, that certain viruses, when they infect mice in the lab, uh, the quasi-species structure is important for their pathogenesis. If you use a virus mutant with a higher fidelity of replication that uh, makes uh, much more homogeneous populations, uh, 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 then um, the pathogenicity of the virus substantially drops. Uh, oh, really? So, so uh, less, so more, 
less less heterogeneous viral infections uh, have less effectiveness, less pathogenicity, pathogenicity? Yes, there are such data. I think these are reliable data. Uh, mm, uh, so, uh, mm, so there are still, uh, mm, this is insufficiently understood. There, is, there certainly is competition and selection, but on top of this, there seems to be some situations at least where they may cooperate. How exactly is a very, very interesting question to which I do think we don't have answers. Do you think there's, um, you know, if I think of the model of one virus, one host cell, you know, the one virus infects it, do you think that there's ever a case where it requires multiple viruses of the same species or quasi-species to literally coordinate entry into a cell? Do you think that happens? Let's say two of them fuse, you know, very close to each other to a cell membrane and they have to coordinate action to enter? I'm unaware of such example. Yeah, if, if, if that was established, I mean... I'm, I'm, think... aware of such, I'm unaware of such examples, but let me tell you about something else, uh, sure. which, which is relevant. Uh, mm, uh, there are many so-called satellite viruses. Mm, uh, viruses, mm, uh, you know, like, uh, mm, like little fleas on, 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 on little fleas and, and smaller fleas, and so ad infinitum. Not quite ad infinitum, uh, mm, uh, but uh, mm, many viruses, many small viruses sort of parasitize on larger viruses, strictly depend for their uh, mm, uh, replication on the larger virus. Uh, this is situation is fairly common. When, when this happens, is the uh, parasitized virus in the virient stage, or does it only happen inside of a cell? No, the, the, the reproduction of the virus happens inside of a cell. Now, how they package into virions, that depends. Mm, some people... No, like, let's say, uh, you know, what if it's like a Mimi virus and there's a virus that preys yeah. upon the Mimi virus? When yeah. does the infection occur in the Mimi virus? When it's in its virion stage or only when it's inside the cell and it's in some intermediate packaging stage? Is that when the infection happens? Let me understand the question. Uh, you are talking about infection of the Mimi virus by the viral stage, right? Yes, exactly, yes. Right. Uh, mm, mm. So, mm, there is some uncertainty here, but I think it's fair to say uh, that uh, mm, uh, the, mm, so to speak, infection of the mini virus by the virophage occurs within the host cell, within the cell of an amoeba, no other host. Uh, mm, uh, so, mm, uh, there's some indications, I think not very good ones, uh, that uh, mm, these virophages can actually package uh, within the giant virus particles and be transmitted to them. But I'm not really sure this is true. On the other hand, it's very well known that they form their own particles, uh, that mm, in fact uh, mm, uh, mm, uh, the host cell independently, uh, mm, but, but cannot uh, reproduce there uh, without the help of the giant virus. So uh, uh, a virophage um, will end up inside of a giant virus, but when the main virus is in a virion stage, both the, the main virus and the virophage are in like a, a dormant status. But once they yes, enter yes, a cell, yes, then yes, they yes, both activate. Uh, you know, you, you, are, you are asking this question, but I think uh, there may be a more, uh, a more general answer. That generally, virions are inert. They don't do much other than uh, mm, uh, absorbing uh, mm, to the surface of host cells uh, and 
uh, injecting other either just the genome or sometimes uh, the genome together with certain uh, proteins into the host cells, whereby they display various activities. The virions themselves, out, there are some curious, curious um, exceptions, but by and large, uh, virions are inert. They don't do much. If, if I set up um, a bacteria that a certain phage infects and I sucked out some of the contents of the bacteria, so it was just a membrane with nothing inside, or it was missing some critical machinery, do you think a phage would attach, fuse, and enter, or do you think it would sense at some point of the entry something is wrong and stop? Um, um, I am unaware of such of any evidence of such sensing. I think that whatever the cell is, uh, if you know the membrane receptors are there intact, the virus would go inside the cell, uh, and only then find out that it was not worth it. So, you know, you could maybe theoretically have decoys, the virus enters and no one's home and now it's stuck. Yes. Oh, um, I don't, it's, it's even interesting, but I don't think such cells have been discovered, decoy cells have been discovered in reality. Well, you'd probably have to make them if you could, but I wondered if you make them, again, if the, you know, if the phage yes. of the virus would oh, sense. Oh, it is possible to make such ghosts. Sam, I do not recall an experiment. Okay, well, I wanted to ask you that. Um, back to uh, a somewhat earlier question. When I asked you if, um, if you think viruses may coordinate at the cell-fusing stage to enter, um, do you think it's possible that once uh, several viruses have fused to a cell membrane, that they could, use, uh, they could signal each other using the cell's machinery, you know, maybe through the membrane, send some kind not of signal to, my, to each not other? To to, not to my knowledge. Okay. It's one big, uh, one big speculation, but thank you for Yeah, uh, it is, it is, it is a good one. A good one, no objection, but just, we don't know. Okay. Why, why do you think there's a, um, a latency period between initial infection and, you know, pathogenicity? You know, sometimes it could be days, weeks, sometimes never. Why do you think there's well, a, a period where, you know? Uh, well, uh, mm, you know, the tri there is trivial answer and various kinds of complexities. Uh, mm, the trivial answer is that, uh, in order, uh, the, is that in order to uh, cause symptoms, in, in order to uh, cause um, disease or uh, um, pathological changes, uh, um, you need a lot of virus. You simply need a lot of virus. Uh, um, uh, so um, uh, it takes time. They, uh, um, uh, usually, normally, so to speak, an organism is just infected by a small number of virus particles, uh, and so it takes time for them to uh, um, uh, um, uh, infect cells. They more or less, you know, propagate exponentially. So if you think of an exponent, uh, the first phase is, is, is shallow, but then it gets steep. Mm -hmm. So in some period of the infection, at least, they propagate exponentially, more or less. Uh, uh, so, um, um, so that's that's a general. But of course, oh, you know, there are more complicated issues. For instance, uh, um, uh, uh, disease uh, emerges when viruses infect uh, certain types of cells. Let's say neurons, like in the case of uh, polyomyelitis virus, uh, and they start their propagation in different types of cells, say in intestine cells. Uh, so it takes time, you know, to 
go through the organism and its different barriers, etc. Okay, so part of the answer, at least, is probably just exponential growth and a critical mass of cells needs to be infected in order to see pathogenicity. That is but there may be other answers too. That is, that is correct. So to speak, let us say, to generalize a bit, uh, that virus needs to infect many cells, uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Uh, sometimes just many cells, sometimes also different kinds of cells. Okay, got it. So uh, another question, if there's a virus that infects somebody, and I, you know, they're the first person infected, I label them number one, and then they give it to someone else, and that's number two, and number three, and you know, I'm like number 19 in this chain of, of passaging. What do you think would be the differences in the virus in me versus the first person that got affected? Do you think that a lot of viruses go towards being less virulent and more commensal with their hosts? Is there a general direction that viruses seem to take over time? This, this is a very complicated question. This is, of course, you know, directly relevant to the um, progression of epidemics and, and the like. Mm, uh, uh, certainly, this is possible direction, but it's not the only possible direction. Uh, um, there can be different situations. Uh, generally, we think uh, this very natural thinking, and um, you know, epidemiologists, virologists thought that way uh, when they started to think about it at all. Uh, they, at some point, they arrived to that idea. Uh, not not immediately, uh, but at some point, uh, some I don't know, 40 years ago or more, uh, they arrived to that idea uh, that uh, the virus actually doesn't care about killing the host or making the host feel sick. Uh, the virus cares, so to speak, only about its own propagation, or um, including broadly understood, including transmission to different hosts. Mm, uh, but it's it's a separate question. How? Uh, the virulence, the effect on a given host organism, is connected uh, mm, uh, to the uh, mm, uh, to the net reproduction rate of the virus, and these connections may be different. Uh, mm, it may be it, it may be the case uh, mm, uh, that mm, uh, high virulence is just an undesirable side effect uh, mm, for the virus, but it may be the case also that they that that they correlate. Uh, that uh, more uh, uh, virulent viruses actually transmit better and on the whole, in a, in a large population, reproduce faster. Both outcomes are possible. Yeah, and another question that comes to mind from this is um, the cell types and the tissues that get infected, at least in people, seem to also correlate with the method of transmission to the next host. So if I get infected with flu, it affects my respiratory system and that's those same cells then you know, make me cough and sneeze and pass it through respiratory droplets. While rabies, you know, uh, seems to infect the, the cells in my saliva and makes me bite someone else and spread it that way. So it seems like, you know, I know there's exceptions, but it seems like the cells infected and then the method of transmission are correlated, at least in, you know, people, dogs, birds. Why? Why would that of be? Course, of course, of course, of course they're correlated. Um, mm. If I get infected by flu, why would I not transmit it sexually, though? Why do I transmit it using the same cells that were infected? Why, does it, why is there this matching? Why, if I get rabies, is it not transmitted sexually? Or why, if I get HIV, is it not transmitted by coughing and sneezing? There seems to be this matching. Yes, and this, these, are, these are all very interesting questions. And this, this um, 
this really, in a sense, this goes back uh, to, to the beginning of our conversation, uh, where we spoke about the lysis-like zoogenic decisions uh, and different evolutionary, maybe we didn't articulate it quite completely, uh, different evolutionary strategies. Mm. Uh, there, mm, um, mm, there are different types of strategies. Some organisms, uh, mm, uh, mm, so to speak, uh, mm, uh, mm, are, se are selected for relatively low rate of reproduction, but high variability, but low, but, but high reliability, or uh, mm, let us say HIV. It persists in the population. It doesn't reach extremely high logs, um, mm, uh, but mm, mm, uh, it sort of takes home in an organism, lives there for a long time, transmits uh, mm, not particularly intensely, largely from sexual contacts, um, which is comparatively low intensity. Um, 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 so uh, the virus sort of chooses a path of reliability. And then there are other um, um, strategy uh, where, uh, let us say, um, smallpox, uh, where um, virus really uh, um, uh, um, reproduces uh, um, rampantly, uh, um, very quickly. It takes as many um, organisms as possible, but this is less reliable. Uh, um, may destroy certain populations, may get destroyed themselves in the environment, uh, um, etc. Uh, um, uh, so, um, uh, um, just like people, uh, some people uh, prefer uh, um, to do a great variety of things. Somehow, others prefer to do one thing, but very well. Um, in a sense, okay. uh, parasites are like that too. Gotcha. And, and I wondered, um, you know, throughout all of history, it's a wild guess, but <laughs> how, many, how many successful viral infections of some host have occurred? You know, if I say the number is like, I don't know, 10 to the 20th, um, if virus, if virions are non-motile, like you said, they don't do much. They don't. Let's say, they're, let's say they're 50 to 100 nanometers in size on average. And the host they infect could be microns, could be, you know, the uh, size of a person, meter and a half, let's say. Yeah. How do they find the, How do they find their way? How do they infect so reliably? I mean, it's, it just seems like it's like if I sent you to to China and I ask you to find someone, you know, how do you find them? It just seems like a, a very improbable thing that they would infect without doing any sensing, just floating along. You know? Um. However, no, this happens. Um. Uh, it, uh, um the difficulty or uh, is of infection depends on the density of a population. You say floating around, diffusing freely. Yes, this may happen. For instance, in the ocean water, uh, in, in the, uh, especially uh, deep into the ocean. Yes, there, uh, the cell density is low, uh, the uh, distance from one to another is large. Under those circumstances, by the way, uh, let's say bacteria, if you choose a lysogenic um, strategy, uh, because it is difficult to jump from host to host, from host to host. Uh, um, so that may be. On the other hand, let us say in the bacterial map, everyone is, is, is nearby. Uh, the cell density is, is huge. Uh, and it's easy to, to infect the next host. So they, they choose the lytic strategy. They, um, they maximize, uh, viral generally, uh, maximize 
the uh, average rate of the production over an extended period of time. And there are different ways to do that. Oh, one, so, one, yeah, there are yeah. different ways to do that. And one of the good ways is to bet hedge, uh, um, uh, to hedge your bets. Uh, um, uh, and that is to be able, and uh, depending on the circumstances, uh, um, uh, to uh, um, assume either, either the lytic stage or the lysogenic stage. Okay, so given enough, given enough virions, enough density, you think that infection is extremely likely? Yes. Oh, given enough density, the infection is, is very likely. Okay, got it. Um, if you uh, consider a bacteria and all the phages that prey upon it, you know, if I call that its phageome, do you think that the phageome, or let's say our virome, contributes to our immunity? Do you think there's a big interplay between, you know, our virome and, and our own immunity, and same thing with bacteria? Yes. Oh, mm, the virome definitely um, contributes to um, immunity. Mm, well, as we discussed, viruses uh, defend against other viruses. They de um, but that happens at a cellular level, let us say in bacteria, for simplicity. One bacteriophage protects the host from superinfection. Uh, mm, very often by related viruses, sometimes even by distant related or unrelated. Mm. At the level of an organism, like say over multicellular organisms uh, like us, uh, this is more complicated, but nevertheless, uh, uh, viruses for sure stimulate mechanisms for innate immunity, uh, and by that they provide some uh, level of protection against other viruses. Um, a subject that I think is insufficiently studied just yet, but there are many, you know, many Mm, tentative uh, mm, uh, suggestive observations of, uh, that vaccines against one type of viruses provide some degree of protection against another type of virus. And then I guess in some examples, uh, vaccines or treatments may, you know, bolster the effect like in dengue and uh, allow other mechanisms of entry and make a, uh, a viral infection worse. And that too may happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. Okay, got it. Just a few more questions. You know, we're, we're close to the end of the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think that um, our virome interacts with our, you know, bacteriome, our microbiome, and with our, our own cells? Do you think that all of them interact on a cellular level, or do you think that, you know, our cells only interact maybe with our, with our bacteria, and then the bacteria interact with the viruses? And what do you think that everyone interacts with everybody in some way? Well, oh, mm, mm. not everyone interacts with everyone. Oh, mm, it, it, it's useful to realize, uh, then we speak, let us say, about the human viral, mm, uh, that the mm, overwhelming majority of the virus, of the virus particles, virus nucleic acid in our organisms, are bacteriophages in our guts and to much lesser extent in other parts of the body, uh, mm, uh, that infect bacteria, that under no circumstances can infect uh, mm, uh, your, our own cells, uh, they, mm, which does not mean they have no effect. Of course, they have effect. In, uh, by far, the most important effect is uh, that they regulate the uh, mm, composition of, of our microbiome, that they kill, that they go through some periodic blooms, they kill subpopulations of bacteria, allow other bacteria to populate our, um, our intestine, let's say, and so on. 
the direct, direct interaction between bacteria, phages, um, uh, and, and, eukaryotic, and uh, eukaryotic cells haven't been studied sufficiently. I think we can be confident that bacteriophages never reproduce inside eukaryotic cells. That, that they simply cannot do. Uh, uh, are there some direct interactions? I am not. Yeah, do, do, they, do you think phages signal and those signals are picked up and interpreted by our somatic cells or germline cells? I don't know. I do not, uh, you know, this, this is a non-trivial proposition or uh, maybe worth investigation, but I think, uh, you know, the no hypothesis should be no, there is no such signaling pathways. Uh, but, well, maybe something, is, maybe something will be discovered. Maybe, maybe there is, maybe there could be some serendipity, some viral components are sensed by ourselves. I'm just not really aware of it. Well, if you look at cholera, uh, from what I know, there's a certain phage that has to infect you know, Vibrio cholerae, and so that they can become pathogenic to us. Oh, so yeah, I wonder yeah. if, if, um, if that no, happens. There are these, surely there are these cases. Uh, when, uh, the well, toxin, well, then the toxin, uh, cholera is a good example, then the toxin uh, mm, that actually uh, mm, causes the disease uh, mm, is encoded by phage. But how does the signal to do that come? Do you think it's the bacteria signaling and, and to the phage and saying, hey, phage, come infect me because I need your help to infect this host? Or do you think there's some kind of feedback mechanism or, you know, interaction between the host's, you know, somatic cells and the... No, the and all this, uh, and all this, I, I'm even hesitant to answer this because uh, cholera and all these mechanisms or its pathogenesis, it is not my area. Uh, I do not, that said, you see, I do not even think that the vibrio Vibrio um, um, bacteria, so to speak, want to kill us or to cause us much distress. They just want to propagate and they happen to be infected by these phages. So I strongly suspect that for the, for the vibrions themselves, um, the cholera is a side effect. It's not, they, they, they didn't choose that. Okay, fair enough. To the very best of my understanding. Okay. <laughs> um. My last question is, what, what role do you see that uh, viruses play in speciation, adaptation, evolution? Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, mm, um, viruses play a huge role in evolution and in, in speciation, in adaptation, in all of that at uh, mm, uh, different levels. Uh, mm, uh, one is uh, mm, the direct capacity. Uh, that is the infect host, host developed defense systems. Um, um, defense systems uh, um, uh, protect the host better or less efficiently. Uh, and um, um, through that, uh, um, viruses can affect the fates of different populations, even of different species. Um, um, they may um, um, uh, accordingly affect the composition of any ecosystem. Um, um, and, um, you know, when Mm, say some resistant um, strain or, um, or, or species or, um, survives or develops um, an uh, efficient defense system and survives, uh, survives uh, um, uh, that's found an effect. Uh, um, uh, other genes uh, the, uh, other, and other properties uh, um, uh, that um, uh, this population has um, hitchhike on the defense system and survive. And so viruses affect evolution. Uh, but there are also other types of effects. Uh, when hosts 
um, acquire and adopt um, um, virus genes um, uh, for their own um, function. Um, for, I mean, a famous, famous sort of now textbook uh, example, the um, uh, receptors of, for the fetus on, on, on mammalian placenta. These are proteins uh, that have been uh, acquired uh, by um, uh, the ancestor of the placental mammals uh, from retroviruses, so-called synthetics, uh, um, uh, and um, uh, um, uh, which, which in the uh, retroviruses uh, are uh, proteins that form a virus envelope. Uh, um, uh, and without these proteins, we would not be having this conversation. Um, um, and uh, because we would not exist. Uh, in any form close to, to our present form. Uh, uh, so, uh, 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 so, so there are quite a few such examples. After all, you have to keep in mind uh, that a very significant fraction of our genome um, in, in complex organisms such as mammals, such as plants, um, such as let's say, vertebrates, such as plants, uh, a very large fraction of the genome. Uh, the mm, mm, genomes of complex life forms, such as the vertebrates or flowering plants, uh, mm, consist of um, remnants of uh, mm, viral genomes. Uh, mm, uh, and uh, mm, there are so many of these sequences. Clearly, they are used for various types of functions. So, viruses are uh, an indispensable component of the evolution of all organisms, and in particular, complex organisms like ourselves. Okay, well, very good. Well, Eugene, I'm glad uh, you were able to answer my really easy, simple questions. Just kidding. But, uh, um, yes, I understand. This is very ironic. You clearly have done a lot of homework. Of questions, some not really answerable. I tried my best, but I could. Yeah, you did. You did great. You did great. Well, what's the best way for listeners to find out about more about your work? Where can they go and see some of it? Well, oh, I think one could go to the to my. Uh, uh, web page at the National Center for Biotechnology Information, or one could just search um, uh, the PubMed database or Google Scholar for my name. It's very simple. You, you have at least one book on Amazon as well. I have I have a couple. Unfortunately, none of them is quite up to date by now. Sure. Yeah, Eugene, thank you, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, it is it is my pleasure, and I look forward to see the book. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.